Chapter Four, Part One of the Subjection of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nikki Sullivan. The Subjection of Women by John Stuart Mill. Chapter Four, Part One. There remains a question not of less importance than those already discussed, and which will be asked the most importunately by the opponents, whose conviction is somewhat shaken on the main point. What good are we to expect from the changes proposed in our customs and institutions? Would mankind be at all better off if women were free? If not, why disturb their brains and attempt to make social revolution in the name of an abstract right? It is hardly to be expected that this question will be asked in respect to the change proposed in the condition of women in marriage. The sufferings, immoralities, evils of all sorts, produced in innumerable cases by the subjection of individual women to individual men, are far too terrible to be overlooked. Unthinking or uncandid persons, counting those cases alone which are extreme, or which attain publicity, may say that the evils are exceptional. But no one can be blind to their existence, nor, in many cases, to their intensity. And it is perfectly obvious that the abuse of the power cannot be much checked while the power remains. It is a power given, or offered, not to good men, or to decently respectable men, but to all men, the most brutal and the most criminal. There is no check but that of opinion, and such men are in general within the reach of no opinion but that of men like themselves. If such men do not brutally tyrannize over the one human being whom the law compels to bear everything from them, society must have already reached a paradisical state. There could be no need any longer of laws to curb men's vicious propensities. Astraea must not only have returned to earth, but the heart of the worst men must have become her temple. The law of servitude in marriage is a monstrous contradiction to all the principles of the modern world, and all the experience through which those principles have been slowly and painfully worked out. It is the sole case, now, that negro slavery has been abolished in which a human being in the plentitude of every faculty is delivered up to the tender mercies of another human being in the hope forsooth that this other will use the power solely for the good of the person subjected to it marriage is the only actual bondage known to our law there remains no legal slaves except the mistress of every house it is not therefore on this part of the subject, that the question is likely to be asked, qui bono? We may be told that the evil would outweigh the good, but the reality of the good admits no dispute. In regard, however, to the larger question, the removal of women's disabilities, their recognition as the equals of men in all that belongs to citizenship, the opening to them of all honorable employments, and of the training and education which qualifies for those employments, 
there are many persons for whom it is not enough that the inequality has no just or legitimate defense. They require to be told what the express advantage will be obtained by abolishing it. To which let me first answer, the advantage of having the most universal and pervading of all human relations regulated by justice instead of injustice. The vast amount of this gain to human nature it is hardly possible, by any explanation or illustration, to place in a stronger light than it is placed by the bare statement to any one who attaches a moral meaning to words. All the selfish propensities, the self-worship, the unjust self-preference, which exist among mankind, have their source and root in, and derive their principal nourishment from, the present construction of the relation between men and women. Think what it is to a boy to grow up to manhood in the belief that without any merit or any exertion of his own, though he may be the most frivolous and empty or the most ignorant and stolid of men, by the mere fact of being born a male he is by right the superior of all in every one of an entire half of the human race including probably some whose real superiority to himself he has a daily or hourly occasion to feel but even if in his whole conduct he habitually follows a woman's guidance still if he is a fool she thinks that of course she is not and cannot be equal in ability and judgment to himself and if he is not a fool he does worse he sees that she is superior to him, and believes that, notwithstanding her superiority, he is entitled to command, and she is bound to obey. What must be the effect of his character on this lesson? And men of the cultured classes are often not aware how deeply it sinks into the immense majority of male minds. For, among right-feeling and well-bred people, the inequality is kept as much as possible out of sight, above all out of sight of the children. As much obedience is required from boys to their mother as to their father. They are not permitted to domineer over their sisters, nor are they accustomed to see these postponed to them. But the contrary, the compensations of the chivalrous feeling being made prominent, while the servitude which requires them is kept in the background. Well-brought-up youths in the higher classes thus often escape the bad influences of the situation in their early years, and only experience them when, arrived at manhood, they fall under the dominion of facts as they really exist. Such people are little aware, when a boy is differently brought up, how early the notion of his inherent superiority to a girl arises in his mind, how it grows with his growth and strengthens with his strength, how it is inoculated by one schoolboy upon another, how early the youth thinks himself superior to his mother, owing her perhaps forbearance, but no real respect and how sublime and sultan-like a sense of superiority he feels, above all, over the woman whom he honors by admitting her to the partner of his life. Is it imagined 
that all this does not pervert the whole manner of existence of the man, both as an individual and as a social being. It is an exact parallel to the feeling of a hereditary king that he is excellent above all others by being born a king, or a noble by being born a noble. The relation between husband and wife is very like that between lord and vassal, except that his wife is held to more unlimited obedience than the vassal was. However, the vassal's character may have been affected, for better or worse, by his subordination. Who can help seeing that the lord's was affected greatly for the worse, whether he was led to believe that his vassals were really superior to himself, or to feel that he was placed in common, in command over people as good as himself, for no merits or labors of his own, but merely for having, as Figaro says, taken the trouble to be born. The self-worship of the monarch, or of the feudal superior, is matched by the self-worship of the male. Human beings do not grow up from childhood in the possession of unearned distinctions, without plumbing themselves upon them. Those whom privileges not acquired by their merit, and which they feel to be disproportioned to it, inspire with additional humility, are always the few, and the best few. The rest are only inspired with pride, and the worst sort of pride, that which values itself upon accidental advantages, not of its own achieving. Above all, when the feeling of being raised above the whole of another sex is combined with the personal authority over one individual among them. The situation, if a school of conscientious and affectionate forbearance for those whose strongest points of character are conscience and affection, is to men of another quality or regularly constituted academy or gymnasium for training them in arrogance and overbearingness, which vices, if curbed by the certainty of resistance in their intercourse with other men, their equals, break out towards all who are in position to be obliged to tolerate them, and often revenge themselves upon the unfortunate wife for the involuntary restraint which they are obliged to submit to elsewhere. The example afforded in the education given to the sentiments by laying the foundation of domestic existence upon the relation contradictory to the first principles of social justice must, from the very nature of man, have a perverting influence of such magnitude that it is hardly possible with our present experience to raise our imaginations to the conception of so great a change for the better as would be made by its removal. All that education and civilization are doing to efface the influences on character of the law of force, and replace them by those of justice, remains merely on the surface, as long as the citadel of the enemy is not attacked. The principle of the modern movement in morals and politics is that conduct, and conduct alone, entitles to respect that not what men are, but what they do, constitutes their claim to deference, that, above all, merit, and not birth, is the only rightful claim to power and authority, 
if no authority, not in its nature temporary, were allowed to one human being over another, society would not be employed in building up propensities with one hand which has to curb with the other. The child would really, from the first time in man's existence on earth, be trained in the way he should go, and when he was old there would be a chance that he would not depart from it. But so long as the right of strong to power over weak rules in the very heart of society, the attempt to make equal right of the weak the principle of its outward actions will always be an uphill struggle, for the law of justice, which is also that of Christianity, will never get possession of men's inmost sentiments. They will be working against it, even when bending to it. The second benefit to be expected from giving to women the free use of their faculties, by leaving them the free choice of their employments, and opening them to the same field of occupation, the same prizes and encouragements as to other human beings, would be that of doubling the mass of mental faculties available for the higher service of humanity where there is now one person qualified to benefit mankind and promote the general improvement as a public teacher or an administrator of some branch of public or social affairs there would then be a chance of two mental superiority of any kind is at present everywhere so much below the demand there is such a deficiency of persons competent to do excellently anything which it requires any considerable amount of ability to do, that, loss, that the loss to the world, by refusing to make use of one half of the whole quantity of talent it possesses, is extremely serious. It is true that this amount of mental power is not totally lost. Much of it is employed, and would in any case be employed, in domestic management, and in the few other occupations open to women. And from the remainder, indirect benefit is in many individual cases obtained through the personal influence of individual women over individual men. But these benefits are partial. Their range is extremely circumscribed and if they must be admitted, on the one hand, as a deduction from the amount of fresh social power that would be acquired by giving freedom to one half of the whole sum of human intellect, there must be added, on the other, the benefit of the stimulus that would be given to the intellect of men by the competition, or, to use a more true expression, by the necessity that would be imposed on them of deserving precedency before they could expect to obtain it. This great accession to the intellectual power of the species, and to the amount of intellect available for the good management of its affairs, would be obtained partly through the better and more complete intellectual education of women, which would then improve pari passu with that of men women in general would be brought up equally capable of understanding business public affairs and the high matters of speculation with men in the same class of society and the select few of the one as well as the other sex 
who were qualified not only to comprehend what is done or thought by others, but to think or do something considerable themselves, would meet with the same faculties for improving and training their capacities in the one sex as in the other. In this way, the widening of the sphere of action for women would operate for good by raising their education to the level of that of men, and making the one participate in all improvements made in the other. But independently of this, the mere breaking down of the barrier would itself have an educational virtue of the highest worth. The mere getting rid of the idea that all the wider subjects of thought in action, all the things which are generally and not solely of private interest, are men's business, from which women are to be warned off, positively indirected from most of it, coldly tolerated in the little which is allowed to them, the mere consciousness of women would then have of being human like any other, entitled to choose her pursuits, urged or invited by the same inducements as any one else to interest herself in whatever is interesting to human beings, entitled to exert the share of influence on all human concerns which belongs to an individual opinion, whether she attempted actual participation in them or not. This alone would effect an immense expansion of the faculties of women, as well as an enlargement of the range of their moral sentiments. Besides the addition to the amount of individual talent available to the conduct of human affairs, which certainly are not at present so abundantly provided in that respect that they can afford to dispense with one half of what nature proffers, the opinion of women would then possess a more beneficial, rather than a greater, influence upon the mass of human belief and sentiment. I say more beneficial, rather than a greater influence. For the influence of women over the general tone of opinion has always, or at least from the earliest known period, been very considerable. The influence of mothers on the early character of their sons, and the desire of young men to recommend themselves to young women, have in all recorded times been important agencies in the formation of character, and have determined some of the chief steps in the progress of civilization. Even in the Homeric age, Alpha Iota Delta Omega Sigma, towards the Tau Rho Omega Alpha Delta Alpha Sigma, Epsilon Lambda Chi Epsilon Sigma Iota Pi Epsilon Pi Lambda Omega Epsilon Sigma is an acknowledged and powerful motive of the action in the great Hector. The moral influence of women has had two modes of operation. First, it has been softened by influence. Those who were most liable to be the victims of violence have naturally tended to be as much as they could towards limiting its sphere and mitigating its excesses. Those who were not taught to fight have naturally inclined in favor of any other mode of settling differences rather than of fighting. In general, those who have been the greatest sufferers by the indulgence of selfish passion have been the most earnest supporters of any moral law which offered a means of bridling passion. 
women were powerfully instrumental in inducing the northern conquerors to adopt the creed of christianity a creed so much more favorable to women than any that preceded it the conversion of the anglo-saxons and of the franks may be said to have been begun by the wives of ethelbert and clovis the other mode in which the effect of women's opinion has been conspicuous is by giving a powerful stimulus to those qualities in men which not being themselves trained in it was necessary for them that they should find in their protectors courage and the military virtues generally have at all times been greatly indebted to the desire which men felt of being admired by women and the stimulus reaches far beyond this one class of eminent qualities since by the very natural effect of their position the best passport to the admiration and favor of women has always been to be thought highly of by men from the combination of the two kinds of moral influence thus exercised by women arose the spirit of chivalry the peculiarity of which is to aim at combining the highest standard of the warlike qualities with the cultivation of a totally different class of virtues those of gentleness generosity and self-abnegation towards the non-military and defenceless classes generally and the special submission and worship directed towards women who were distinguished from the other defenceless classes by the high rewards which they had it in their power voluntarily to bestow on those who endeavoured to earn their favour instead of exhorting their subjection though the practice of chivalry fell even more sadly short of its theoretic standard than practice generally falls below theory it remains one of the most precious monuments of the moral history of our race as a remarkable instance of the concerted and organized attempt by a most disorganized and distracted society to raise up and carry into practice a moral ideal greatly in advance of its social condition and institutions so much so as to have been completely frustrated in the main object yet never entirely inefficacious and which has left a most sensible and for the most part a highly valuable impress on the ideas and feelings of all subsequent times the chivalrous idea is the acme of the influence of women's sentiment on the moral cultivation of mankind and if women are to remain in their subordinate situation it were greatly to be lamented that the chivalrous standard should have passed away for it is the only one at all capable of mitigating the demoralizing influences of that position but the changes in the general state of the species rendered inevitable the substitution of a totally different ideal of morality for the chivalrous one chivalry was the attempt to infuse moral elements into a state of society in which everything depended for good or evil on individual prowess under the softening influences of individual delicacy and generosity in modern societies all things even the military department of affairs are decided not by individual effort but by the combined operations of numbers 
while the main occupation of society has changed from fighting to business from military to industrial life the exigencies of the new life are no more exclusive of the virtues of generosity than those of the old but it no longer entirely depends on them the main foundations of the moral life of modern times must be justice and prudence the respect of each for the rights of every other and the ability of each to take care of himself chivalry left without legal check all forms of wrong which reigned unpunished throughout society it only encouraged a few to do right in preferences to wrong by the direction it gave to the instruments of praise and admiration but the real dependence of morality must always be upon its penal sanctions its power to deter from evil the security of society cannot rest on merely rendering honor to right a motive so comparatively weak in all but a few and which on very many does not operate at all modern society is able to repress wrong through all departments of life by a fit exertion of the superior strength which civilization has given to it and thus to render the existence of the weaker members of society no longer defenceless but protected by law tolerable to them without reliance on the chivalrous feelings of those who are in a position to tyrannize the beauties and graces of the chivalrous character are still what they were but the rights of the weak and the general comfort of human life now rest on a far surer and steadier support or rather they do so in every relation of life except the conjugal at present the moral influence of women is no less real but it is no longer of so marked and definite a character it has more nearly merged in the general influence of public opinion both through the contagion of sympathy and through the desire of men to shine in the eyes of women their feelings have great effect in keeping alive what remains of the chivalrous ideal in fostering the sentiments and continuing the traditions of spirit in generosity in these points of character their standard is higher than that of men in the quality of justice somewhat lower as regards the relations of private life it may be said generally that their influence is on the whole encouraging to the softer virtues discouraging to the sterner though the statement must be taken with all the modifications dependent on individual character in the chief of the greater trials which virtue is subject in the concerns of life the conflict between interest and principle the tendency of women's influence it is of a very mixed character when the principle involved happens to be one of the very few which the course of their religious or moral education has strongly impressed upon themselves they are potent auxiliaries to virtue and their husbands and sons are often prompted by them to acts of abnegation which they would never have been capable of without that stimulus but with the present education and position of women the moral principles which have been impressed on them cover but a comparatively small part of the field of virtue and are moreover principally negative 
forbidding particular acts, but having little to do with the general direction of the thoughts and purposes. I am afraid it must be said that disinterestedness in the general conduct of life, the devotion of the energies to purposes which hold out no promise of private advantages to the family, is very seldom encouraged or supported by women's influence. It is small blame to them that they discourage objects of which they have not learnt to see the advantage, and which withdraw their men from them, and from the interests of the family. But the consequence is that the women's influence is often anything but favourable to public virtue. Women have, however, some share of the influence in giving the tone to public moralities since their sphere of action has been little dwindled, and since a considerable number of them have occupied themselves practically in the promotion of objects reaching beyond their own family and household. The influence of women counts for a great deal in two of the most marked features of modern European life, its aversion to war and its addiction to philanthropy. Excellent characteristics both, but unhappily, if the influence of women is valuable in the encouragement it gives to these feelings in general, in the particular applications the direction it gives to them is at least as often mischievous as useful. In the philanthropic department more particularly, the two provinces chiefly cultivated by women are religious proselytism and charity. Religious proselytism at home is but another word for embittering of religious animosities. Abroad, it is usually a blind running at an object, without either knowing or heeding the fatal mischiefs, fatal to the religious object itself as well as to all other desirable objects, which may be produced by the means employed. As for charity, it is a matter in which the immediate effect on the persons directly concerned and the ultimate consequence to the general good are apt to be at complete war with one another. While the education given to women, an education of the sentiments rather than of the understanding, and the habit inculcated by their whole life, or looking to immediate effects on persons, and not to remote effects on classes of persons, make them both unable to see, and unwilling to admit, the ultimate evil tendency of any form of charity or philanthropy which commends itself to their sympathetic feelings. The great and continually increasing mass of unenlightened and short-sighted benevolence which, taking the care of people's lives out of their own hands, and relieving them from the disagreeable consequences of their own acts, saps the very foundation of the self-respect, self-help, and self-control, which are the essential conditions both of individual prosperity and of social virtue. This waste of resources and of benevolent feelings in doing harm instead of good is immensely swelled by women's contributions and stimulated by their influence. Not that this is a mistake likely to be made by women, where they have actually the practical management of schemes of beneficence. It sometimes happens that women who administer public charities, with that insight into present fact, and especially into the minds and feelings of those with whom they are in immediate contact, in which women generally excel men, 
recognize in the clearest manner the demoralizing influence of the alms given or the help afforded and could give lessons on the subject to many a male political economist but women who only give their money and are not brought face to face with the effects it produces how can they be expected to foresee them a woman born to the present lot of women and content with it how should she appreciate the value of self-dependence she is not self-dependent she is not taught self-dependence her destiny is to receive everything from others and why should what is good enough for her be bad for the poor her familiar notions of good are blessings descending from a superior she forgets that she is not free and that the poor are that if what they need is to be given to them unearned they cannot be compelled to earn it that everybody cannot be taken care of by everybody but there must be some motive to induce people to take care of themselves and that to be helped to help themselves if they are physically capable of it is the only charity which proves to be charity in the end end of chapter four part one recording by nikki sullivan chicago